What's up, fellow car enthusiasts? Welcome to an episode of Behind the Boost presented by MA Performance. I'm your host, Charlie Main, and today we plan to bring you some of the behind the scenes of the automotive world. In today's episode, I'm joined by Mad Max. Now, Max is one of the fabricators here at ME Performance in the R&D department. So that means he also is in charge for coming up with some of these crazy things we decided to offer. Today, we talk about how he got into welding in the first place, his education on motorsports fabrication, and lastly, his crazy one-off truck build. You guys don't want to miss this one. Stay tuned. Max, thanks for joining us, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. I want to jump right into some stuff here with you, Max. Again, like I said, guys, Max is one of the people who has definitely a huge integral role in the R&D process here and does a lot of like the initial work, especially as we take on new products and things like that to help get it to a point where it's easy for people to install, easy for people to understand some of that process. And he definitely puts in a lot of thought behind everything he does. And so I'm really excited to hear some of, of how that all works. But Max, I guess the first thing that I want to cover is just kind of how you got started, kind of what led you to MAP. I mean, were you always into cars, that sort of thing? Um, maybe give us some of that backstory. I guess I've been doing fabrication since about the eighth grade. Ever since I was a little kid, probably six, seven years old, I've been pretty intrigued by uh, anything heavy-duty suspension-wise. I used to watch all the old-school Baja footage from when they would do the Baja 1000, and I love to watch the slow-mo videos and see all the articulation and all the parts and all the functioning members and all that good stuff. And from then on, it's just kind of been this uh, mechanical endeavor to just learn how things work and see how things operate. And I found a, a home with cars, as did, you know, many of my generation based on the, the Fast and Furious movies and, and a lot of stuff in that kind of arena. Typically fell in love with drifting in my teenage years and uh, ever since have been working on building a uh, fully custom drift truck. Yeah, it's it's more of a, a labor of love than anything. I haven't got to do a whole lot with it, but I've got almost six years into it and I'm uh, just about ready to get after it with that. But uh, I've also found a pretty hefty love for sim racing and I'm looking to kind of improve on that uh, aspect of my life too. I'm in the middle of rebuilding my third revision of my sim rig right now console racing, but I'm also going to step into uh, high-end PC racing for all the modability of the racing games and that kind of stuff. And plus, at the end of the day, you spend all the money on the sim rig and the computer, and then you can crash as much as you want. So <laughs> that's yeah, definitely. a fortunate effect for me, especially. Got me scared to go back to the real racetracks here. Yeah, right. I know everybody else is going to be spending time in the sim rig getting used to pressing the restart button. So yep. it doesn't exist in real life, and that's a, that's a hard lesson to learn, but a good one, too. So It does. It's just my bank account. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah. Press so, it, and it doesn't I'm never going to financially recover from this. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. It's kind of, it's kind of a double-sided sword on that one. You can probably dump just as much money into sim racing as you can to drift missiles. So... It's, yeah. you know, one and the same in that aspect. But um, I've also kind of 
found a healthy respect for a lot more of the formula racing stuff. Uh, big F1 fan, have been since I was like 12 years old. My dad was way into Formula One racing. Okay. Huge Michael Schumacher fan. And uh, of course, the history of F1 all the way back to the 60s and stuff like that. So kind of grew up with motorsport pedigree in the house, you know, always having that mechanical inclination as a kid growing up. So getting into fabrication was more or less a no-brainer for me, especially with the need to tinker with just about anything that I could take apart, usually break it and then, you know, throw it away and, and learn, from it, learn from it at that point. So now in my professional career, I try not to break things. I try to keep things in a fairly usable state. If, if you ask Dalen, I do, a, a, you know, about 80-20 on that one, I'd say. Uh, but everybody reaches a breaking point. Yeah, you know, you got to find out how things are made and how things go together, and sometimes it doesn't work. So it is what it is at that point. That's why it's called R and D. It stands for uh, restart and do over. So <laughs> yeah, right. I do want to touch quickly. I uh, I actually had my first like sim racing experience like two weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, one of my buddies, it's has a has a setup or whatever that. Like the seat doesn't move, the seat's like station, station right, right, complex. Yeah. I, I don't know if that's what you have, but. No, not quite yet. I don't have a motion rig yet. It's just the front okay. back. At the and this has like the VR goggles. Yeah, that's pretty great. Yeah. And so, I mean, I couldn't believe how hard it was for like my brain to decipher the difference. Yeah. It being fake and real. Yeah, it's very immersive. I was, I mean, I knew it obviously wasn't real, but I was sweating profusely yeah your heart rate elevates all the good stuff happens yeah yeah it's pretty crazy it's pretty crazy but yeah so i want to dive a little bit more into some of the uh r d stuff i mean what's the i mean are there any like favorite products that you've kind of you've been most proud of or like happy to have your hand in or something that was maybe super challenging that you ended up figuring it out and just maybe that's why you're proud of it I guess most challenging so far would be our 10th gen Civic, not necessarily in the build and not so much in the, uh, the processes that it took to get it, you know, put together. It's more in just the repetition of trying new things. So we tried a handful of different turbo setups, a couple of different uh, charge piping setups, and we've just kind of been picking away at uh, little things to, to upgrade and, and to help the thing add a little bit here and add a little bit there. And now we're all the way up to nitrous and a big, big front mount intercooler and uh, a big old, big old turb ski on it. I think, I think that'll be the third or fourth rendition of the turbo kit for uh, prototype, prototyping versions. It might be the third rendition, but. I see Damon trying to do some quick math over there. Yeah. So yeah. the actual turbo kit, I think, is the third, but like different turbo on the car. I think we're at like six. Yeah. Oh wow. Yep. And it's actually back to the tiny one right now. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So that car's been extremely challenging in the sense that we've had to keep it versatile. We've tried really hard to make sure that anything we do, we don't go too far. To where we can't go back to a previous setup and gain a baseline again and be happy with where we were uh previous instead of trying to go back and then going oh my gosh we can't even get it to function like we got it to function before so it's been it's been really fun actually with that that in mind having it be very interchangeable and then uh 
you know, setting. Well, it sounds like it's one of those things too, where it's fun to just, again, it's a vehicle where you guys are able to do something different with it um, and try different approaches to achieve, you know, ultimately uh, the, the result of having it, you know, run fast. I mean, for people listening right now who don't know, that was the platform that we uh, went for a world record quarter mile with and actually had it up until I think pretty recently, right? Yeah, you know, last like, couple of weeks, I think. Yeah, just in the most recent, yeah. I mean, what was it, like maybe three, four weeks ago now? Yeah, right around there. All our tracks be shut down, so we can't clap back yet. We, we may actually take a stab, it sounds like, huh? I'm pretty sure we held the stock block record for a little while as well. I think we still have the stock block record on oh, okay. horsepower yeah. and on uh, actual quarter mile times, because like our stock block was like 550. Yeah, I was going to say like 550 and then 530 torque or something like that. We made. Something. I don't even remember the torque. It was like, no, it was definitely lower than that because that's how we kept the motor alive. Okay, okay. But yeah, no, I think that quarter mile wise, I think that our car is still the fastest stock motor car. And that was actually like Max talked about challenges. That was the thing that we kind of set out to just be like, this is the thing that we want and like work towards. And I think that was possibly one of the most challenging things of the entire the other real challenge with that car was keeping the uh oem core support so we we hung everything off oem locations we kept air conditioning and uh basically at the very most we were able to get by with minimally notching the core support we didn't have to do anything tubular up front until we finally hung the uh the big boy intercooler that we haven't really got to do much testing with yet and that was more just to fit the intercooler but everything on the back side of the radiator was still positioned basically in stock form so that you know with, actually with the the idea in mind that if we wanted to develop this turbo kit for resale it would fit like 90 percent of your vehicle and you wouldn't have to do a whole lot to do it that was another big challenge considering that the intake decides to transverse and go go all sorts of different directions and then having the charge piping dip underneath a bunch of different places and around and where the oem stuff was rubber and we replaced it with actual piping was a was another challenge for that so we did a pretty good job of making all that work that's the end goal is like we can make a crazy race car like we have the ability to do that but yeah these cars are still in their infancy so making it so that people are uh it can be relatable and they can say i can do that with my car too yeah well and so one thing that i so we recently released the uh mac tv it's like our behind the scenes series on our youtube channel sounds like friday uh we've actually got a episode that'll be coming out where we were able to do some work with you max in the back when we were working on a new product we're working on for the civics for tv hatch was it i believe the red one yeah. and it was really interesting to see again because the si civics and just like the one five t's have well, for most part, it's what the four-door or the two-door coupes that we have the exhaust for already, but you're working on it for the hatchback, the sport hatch. Right, yeah. So the hatchback scenario, but it was like, we're just trying to find ways to use a lot of the same components while doing some more stuff to just make it easier to install. Yeah, we're basically just trying to cater to a larger audience as far as those cars are concerned because there's definitely demand for it. Originally with the R&D process on that, we were hoping to take what we'd already developed for the SI platform and transfer as much of it to the sport platform as possible. And fortunately, it's about 80% the same except the axle backs changes at the rear subframe. So 
that was really the only bit of uh, hardcore R&D that we had to do at that point to develop a new axle back for that area. The lower valence of the rear bumper is a little bit different on the exit. It's not the same HDMI port style uh, tip as the SI versions are. Right. So we had to kind of get a little bit tricky with how we fit the tip in there and dropped it from a four tip down to a two tip, but it's another good challenge for those vehicles to land with another huge audience of people who didn't want to go the SI route. Yeah, no, and it's just, again, it's cool for me some being somebody who's not as involved in that process just to kind of see again because you're trying to put yourself in different people's shoes and you know i i actually uh got to review the rough cut of that video uh this morning for everybody who's watching now um stay tuned because friday we'll be releasing the video it sounds like it should be a friday four o'clock release on our youtube channel go over there subscribe hit the notification bell so you don't miss it but it, it shows a lot of the process on how you just think about the consumer and it's just another facet in where as a company you know we're putting the customer first mm -hmm. trying to think again it was listening to the rough cut there's a part where dalen actually mentions like try and remember there's somebody who's going to be under here busting their knuckles breaking their back in the driveway trying to do this they're not going to be on a lift you know five six feet in the air with the all the room in the world to work and so again just trying to keep the customer in mind throughout the entire process as you build it i mean there's just so much to keep in mind it's it's incredible that you guys are able to actually successfully do it every time well yeah and it's to, to dalen's credit he's always got that good perspective for us because we do have the the fortunate ability of the the lift to get it off the ground and the nice welders and the good materials and all that different stuff so we don't really struggle with what we would call the basics yeah. would call you know uh a huge huge advantage in that sense so it is definitely always on the scope to pay attention to what they would have to go through installing it in their driveway in 95 degree heat on jack stands hopefully not harbor freight jack stand <laughs> well, we were just talking on the one we did with tiny two weeks ago we did the one with tiny you were talking about how there's different processes where Again, like when you go to a racetrack, you don't have a lift. Like you've got to be able to maybe swap a motor mm -hmm. on jack stands in a parking lot. If, if you were to like go into most high level race shops or uh, I mean, even like medium level stuff this day and age, um, you won't find a lift in the entire building. Well, and it makes sense because again, you're trying to be comfortable doing it in the way that you would do it when it counts, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, if you make a decision, like based off of the lift and you go to the racetrack and you got to work on it and you like can't contort into whatever area you, the orientation of a hose clamp, like how important that is at certain times that like, if you can't get to it, can't get to it. And the right. stuff that like, we try to bring that into our customer facing stuff because yeah, same thing. If you're laying on your back in your driveway, in your garage on like friends dirt road, if we orientate something in a weird spot that you, you can't get to it, you're, going to not be happy and you're not going to be excited to install it. We make conscious decisions to give you a product that the install is one of the main things we think about when making. And it's interesting because again, like for somebody like me, if I was trying to figure out in a bulletproof way to keep that in mind, I can't think of anything other than just like pulling out the jack stands, pulling the car out in the back parking lot and trying to install the parts right there and see how it works. Yeah. Well, especially when they show up to your front door and you're anxious and you're like, we're putting these on we're getting after it let's do it right now so you got no time to wait you know even even safety gets thrown to the wind by most people even though i wouldn't suggest it but 
Yeah, right. No, obviously. I have just piles of things that show up. I don't do it right away ever. I just, like there's literally just piles of parts. I typically unbox it and then just handle it for three, four days before doing anything with it. I don't even do that. Even my like fake office here, there's just parts everywhere. And, like they just I show don't up. Do it. I literally get a part and I'm like a kid with a lollipop. Like I can't <laughs> wait to just eat this thing. And like be like I mean we've talked about this a little bit because I get to do it for work all day. Like it yeah. kind of like it fills the need. So yeah. like I've gone years where I won't even touch the car because like everything I'm excited about, I get to do with customer cars. And so like my own stuff kind of just sits in a corner because like when I leave my car work, I go do other stuff. I just got a new car. So I've been working on it, but like same thing. I haven't ordered any parts, but just working on it. It's just fun. But I have another car that's sitting right next to it that I started it to make sure the battery wasn't dead. And that's like the level of attention it gets right. Feeds your automotive ADD. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, I'm bad. We were talking before this. Uh, it, apparently, we all just learned Dalen's like the most patient car enthusiast in the world because apparently he's willing to wait four years for things to show up that he's already paid for. Like I said, I've been doing this for a long time to the point where like, I mean, we, we joked about it, but like dead serious. He used to like literally wrote a check and sent it to an address with like the back of a magazine cut out. And like at some point it would just show up and you were excited, but like, there was no between like i didn't get a letter with a shipping tracking number like i didn't you get like to that so like on a paper plate i yeah. want this like, it, it's like so it's difficult for me to relate sometimes and like i remember my first purchase from ebay 2000 2001 i literally ordered something and it took so long to get to me that i forgot that i ordered it and it showed up and it was like a surprise i was like oh sweet it's like nowadays when you make uh influenced purchases after nights on the town and uh all of a sudden uh, a new exhaust shows up that you don't remember ordering and only only three to five days later <laughs> i had a, i had a roommate who had like he like would regularly order parts after we'd go out and drink and it would just be like so funny because it'd be like a new set of headlights would show up out of nowhere but anyways I wanted to get back next to kind of more of the R&D stuff. I guess for me, the one thing that's like crazy about how integral it is to like your role specifically, but like welding, because that's something that I know nothing about. I'm not good at it. It's like a craft that's completely foreign to me. Um, so how did, I mean, I know you mentioned earlier that you've kind of always been into fabrication. It kind of started with suspension components and things like that, but how did you get into welding? I've been doing the welding stuff since, like I said, about eighth grade. Took classes in, in junior high, introduction to welding, and then welding one, welding two, stuff like that. And then got into actual high school and took the advanced welding classes there. And then when I ran out of welding classes because I had three years left in school, I had, I was the TA for my welding teacher for my, my break periods. So I was always in the, in the fab shop at, at my high school, basically for six years doing odds and ends, making just about anything. I built a couple go-karts. I built a hockey net at one point, helped a friend build a, a snowboard rail at one point, And just, I kind of just cut my teeth on basically anything that I could get my hands on. I was super into playing with metal, um, learning things about metal at, at a certain point in like ninth grade, I 
melted an entire structure down to just a big metal puddle just to see what would happen, you know, just to kind of learn how it all worked. And then I think 11th grade, I leaned into some engineering classes in in high school and started playing with the CAD software and, and learning some of that side of things. And found that I did more enjoy the hands-on. But uh, it wasn't until I think 10th grade that I stepped onto the TIG welder for the first time. They threw us to the wolves right away. It wasn't, you know, learn on steel, which is typically easier. It was um, play with aluminum right away. So it was definitely a hard thing to get the handle on. But as soon as you got it figured out, it was just kind of practice, practice, practice. As much as you can practice, well, and I'm sure, and I'm sure once you you've kind of got it down on a, on aluminum, working on steel is a lot easier. It can or? be so. Like in general, at this point, since I've been welding since I was 14 years old, so over half my life, it, it's just everything's got its own properties to how it welds but the overall scope is fairly similar from one thing to the next i mean obviously there's a difference between steel and aluminum and titanium and brazing and all that kind of stuff there's definitely differences but there's still a lot of similarities between them all um and then being that i was heavily into the automotive stuff it just kind of funneled that direction i just kept playing with cars and taking stuff apart and then a friend would need something welded or fixed or drill a curb going way too fast or you know any anything that that full scope and it was just can you fix this i don't know let's try that kind of thing so after a while uh playing with you know my own cars i actually bought a go-kart when i was 21 and we converted it to single seat and put like a 10 horsepower engine on it and Got it to go a real, real sketchy 45 miles per hour and <laughs> eventually rolled it on myself real bad. You know, the whole time, just every, every kid wants to do it type stuff. And, and after that, I ended up going out to uh, Wyotech in Wyoming for uh, their automotive automotive classes and then specialty training in motorsports chassis fabrication. So that's what oh, wow. all of the like uh, chassis fab stuff that kind of taught me how to start building my truck. Obviously, I've learned a ton since I finished school, but it was really kind of the, the predecessor to, to getting into actually doing it. I wanted to make sure that if I'm going to build something like that, I'm going to learn how to do it the right way, the safe way, and not build myself a big rolling coffin that I'm going to hurt myself with. Right. So that's really the idea is to be, you know, doing things the right way instead of hoping that they're the right way and then and then finding out later they're not obviously there's always stuff like that that's going to change there's always someone that's going to point something out and say hey that's not safe or that's not right or whatever but i've also seen a lot of sketchy shit work really really good you know there is that aspect as well so i i hope i'm on the the, the less sketchy side of things yeah, I think you always kind of hope to be. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, on top of that, I just try Maybe to not Balin. I try to build it as durable as possible, but you know, it is what it is. We'll find out how durable it is when it gets beat to death. So yeah. yeah. And I think that's a good I think that's a good kind of segue because I don't know that we've really talked much about your truck or what it is or you know, really told these guys much of anything about that. You know, why don't you go into that a little bit? By the way, I just want to take a time out. I keep thinking that you're drinking a white claw over there, Dalen. And I know that's probably not the case. <laughs> no, it's a it's a bubbler. Okay. I've never heard of that. 
<laughs> you seem to regularly have that drink, so. So I just found them at the local gas station, and they're cheap and they're tasty, and so I just bought a bunch of them, and they work really well when I don't want water. Yeah. So not White Claw. There are currently laws right now. Right. All right. So let's talk about this truck a little bit. Uh, so you've got a truck. We know now that you've done some some motorsport fab, you know, schooling and thing like things like that. Mm -hmm. um, you've mentioned earlier that you know everything that you kind of got into initially was you know originally you know started off of you know the interest in suspension and things like that and drifting and mm -hmm. things like that. So how does the truck fit into all of that? Uh, what what is it first of all, and how does it fit into all of that? So it's a, a 1989 Isuzu pickup. A lot okay. of people call it Isuzu Pup, which is just kind of short for pickup. And it's I'm like 90% sure it's very similar to the Chevy Love. I think they're kind of sister trucks. They, they they were developed at the same time, or they use a lot of similar parts and stuff. Kind of stemming back to you know, wanting to learn about motorsport and suspension and, you know, components and stuff like that. I've always wanted to, from the ground up, build something, have my hands on every bolt, have influence on every single part that, you know, was put into the vehicle, which hindsight, it's way too much work. Don't do it. <laughs> it's, it's a lot to know. Realistically, it's, it's a, uh, it's a fun, it's a fun thing to do. Um, it's very visceral to me. The, the fact that I get to have every single thing the way I want it is a, is an important aspect for me for sure. What else do you want to know about it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, how do, well, first off, I guess, how do you, how does somebody even begin to design something like that? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, it's obviously a project that if you're going to do it yourself, you should have some knowledge around again, just like like you did, like you went and got the, some education on the basics behind, you know, motorsport fabrication. And I don't mean to use the term basics because I'm sure you learned a lot more than just like how to hold a welder. You know, I mean, I feel like if you're going to take on a project like that, you should already have been doing this for a while. You know, you should right. know how to weld at this point. But I mean, again, like from a design standpoint to like the structural integrity standpoint, I mean, it, it all weighs in on each other. And I don't even know, again, it seems like such a huge project that for someone like me who doesn't know a lot about it, it's like, where, where do you begin? Right. I mean, yeah. start like Dalen and drawing with crayons on paper plates or where do yeah, you go first? It's actually funny. That you stuff too. So for uh, probably three, four years before I even started at, uh, at MAP here, I was, like my own version of Chip Foos. I would draw just about anything down on paper that would strike me as something I would possibly want to build. And a lot of it was kind of RZR-esque, like buggy type stuff. Again, kind of falling back to that uh, that Baja suspension type thing. I, I just, that that's always intrigued me, you know, a lot. Then when I fell in love with drifting, the, the two kind of paired up really good for me. I really wanted to still design something that had all of that different all that different feel to it fall in the drifting category but i didn't want to do something that everybody else had done and then when i met andrew when i first started at the shop he talked me into doing the custom truck and from there on out it's just kind of been this all out you know how do we do it what can we do I've made mistakes. I've had to go back. I've had to restart certain things. I've had to uh, cut parts out and make things, you know, work better. So it's definitely been 
a massive learning curve. If there's really, if, if there's anything about it that I can take away is that if you're going to do it, just do it. Don't be afraid that you won't do it right because you won't. And that's kind of the, the, the best part about it is that it's going to teach you everything you're going to need to know along the way and you'll fail. But if you don't quit, you don't really fail. And that's kind of the whole like mindset behind it. Yeah. Um, you're just learning at that. Right. Point. Right. So, you know, with the little bit of knowledge that I had from school and then motorsport pedigree in the home and just kind of having the, the mechanical background and constantly playing with that stuff, I had kind of a vision for what I wanted it to be. And then, like I said, I wanted something super different, something that you don't see very often. Um, I've had a lot of people compare it to the engineered to slide truck. It's a another custom chassis truck built out of Australia. And the guy's got you know, he, his, his truck's way more in depth than mine. Good old Mr. Nigel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah, he's, he's got some cool stuff. He really does. And he's, he's more of an engineer than, than I am. He's got a lot more of that, that, uh, engineer mindset. I'm more of an artist, I guess I would say math and me don't really, don't really coincide. I'm good at measurements, but I'm not great at math. So, sure. that, you know, that, that, it works pretty good for what I do and what I'm afforded. Going after building the truck frame was really an all-out goal I had for for life, kind of a bucket list thing. I wanted to build a custom chassis something. And when I went to school, they basically showed us how to build the mini NASCAR frames. And they were, I think, third scale that a couple of guys built. It was pretty basic. It wasn't really as complex as it seems to be. So I kind of took it from there and knew that I had to do certain things a certain way. And then I had freedoms in other respects. I did a lot, a lot of consulting. I hit, hit a lot of friends with ideas and I, you know, I let people with more tenure in the field teach me stuff. I, I didn't try to sit on the fact that I went to school, so I know better. You know, I wanted to make sure that if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it right. I'm not going to just pretend like my way is the best way to do it. So that's probably why it's taken six and a half years apart from, or five and a half years apart from uh, finances. Right. At the same point, I'm happy. You know, I can look back and say, hey, we didn't rush through this part and now I have to fix it or, you know, anything of that nature. More insight, it's fully custom food chassis, a gutted cab on top of, on top of the frame and then literally front fenders, a bumper, a grill, a hood, and then bedsides fitted to it so it's more of a race car than anything that looks like a truck it's not really much of an actual truck like the bed's not functional it's fully supported by uh s13 suspension and steering fully built one jz and r154 transmission which is also fully built so it it's it, it make a decent amount of noise once it's actually doing it again yeah and so what it so again i know now what the truck is but what did you what did you build it for exactly i mean did you build it to do anything specifically or just again just to have fun with um so originally five and a half years ago i was tossing around the idea of buying an e46 m3 after some deliberation and then the inability to go as in-depth with chassis work as i really wanted to um, I kind of decided against that because I also didn't want to drift an M3 and thrash that car because I probably would have spent 10 to 15K on it. Right. Uh, and just mentally, that was a hard thing for me to get past. 
but hindsight, I probably should have done that. I'd been drifting for about three, four years now, <laughs> something right. like that. But that's the intent with the truck is to slide it. You never know. It might, it might evolve from there. I might, you know, move into lap battles or time attack or something like that. You never know kind of open for all that stuff and then realistically it's just a hot rod at this point it's nothing more nothing less it, it looks pretty it, it you know it sits it sits in one place and it's it's expensive so yeah well of course i mean most most any kind of car hobby ends up getting expensive oh, yeah. at some point. so i guess then in terms of you know again with you wanting to slide around with the truck and everything like that how did did you did you end up changing anything as you designed it or did you pretty much i mean did you nail it from the start or was it something again that like you know as you learn again how to how to drive better you learn that you might want something set up a little different or maybe i'm sure i'm sure it'll get there that's for sure because realistically i haven't really crossed over into the let's figure out how it feels stage yet i'm kind of more in the like break it in let's get it running correctly let's make sure the nuts and bolts don't fall out you know the wheels stay on that kind of thing at this point eventually here we'll start to lean into power make sure that the engine's broken and then i'll start to toss it around and see how it feels see if i'm having you know issues with steering or if i'm you know overheating the diff and i you know just need to put a spool in it or something where we're hoping it'll make around 450 right away so that's going to be way too much for me i've never had anything with that much power so it's really going to be more of a learn how to drive it before you learn how to drift it type thing and then uh take off from there but the original perspective was andrew had built a hard body nissan and utilized all S13 suspension and uh, steering, and the truck worked great for years and years and years and got beat to death like five times and kept coming back for more. And then he built and then I bought it. And then, then he built his S10, <laughs> and the S10 was even, even more of a monster. And uh, then the S10 is the one you bought, right? I bought both of them. I actually owned both of Andrew's trucks. <laughs> so Dalen gets it. He understands. He gets Andrew's builds. He knows. But that really was the inspiration. This, this machine works really good. The setup is perfect. You know, it it does what it's supposed to. Unfortunately, after I bought my engine and transmission, we cracked them open and they were in bad shape. So that forced me to build them, which then, of course, the snowball effect and, you know, put a big turbo on it. You know, build the transmission right. and you know do all this different. Because like, you can, you have to. Right? Yeah, you got it apart already. You are you, you're gonna have to spend that money already. You know, five thousand dollars later into the motor. So that's the problem of cars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm happy to be where I am, but at the same point, like I just want to drive it. I just want to be beyond that threshold of still working on it, but in due time. So the idea is to have it be durable. Hopefully, it does what I need it to. Yeah, no, I mean, and that's cool. Again, it's, uh, I think one thing that's important to, that I always try to convey is that a lot of us here at MAP are enthusiasts just like the customers, and we're just as in love with the process as we are the end result. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's something that, again, we've all, at least that, you know, the people that I interact with on a regular basis that, you know, I talk to about cars, it's, it's like you have to love the process or you're going to hate it overall. Um, 
And it's just cool that we have so much of that actually happening here, you know, within our four walls. Um, just kind of every every week, you know, we've got somebody different in, and it's always some kind of story about a car or a build or a project or whatever. And whether it's completed or in process, it's still you're, it's always just as exciting to talk about. So yeah, the passion exists, that's for sure. And I mean, I'd say it's about fifty fifty as far as working on it and playing with it. Unfortunately, I haven't got any of the play with it yet. But you know, the sim, this like like you said earlier, the sim racing does scratch the edge. It really does to be able to sit there and be competitive with other people and do something on that scale, playing cars or whatever, and then go to work and take apart the Mark V Supra and play with that. That stuff's all fun to do. Yeah, well, nonetheless, it's still it's still pretty cool. Has so has any of this stuff where you again like diving further into into motorsports and stuff like that, um, especially like in terms of like the fabrication around the parts and design and things like that. I mean, how does that you know again? How does that relate back to something like like a like an exhaust on a sport hatchback? You know, where does some of that knowledge and some of that experience play into what you do here more often? again it's not like we're at the track every day right like yeah cars are fabricating custom chassis builds a lot of it is coming up with you know a lot of some of the more like basic bolt-on stuff that people end up doing in their garage where you know anybody anybody with you know like a ratchet set and you know some jack stands can ultimately figure it out right yeah like having, having this like excess of knowledge in motorsport fabrications and applying it to Again, uh, catback exhaust. Right, yeah. So, I mean, I guess Dalen can kind of attest to this, but what we try to end up doing is derive all of our intentions from performance. So we have an idea in mind of what we want it to do, and then we try to bring that, that idea to life in a way that would fit the customer. Whether we decide to go with two and a half inch size exhaust or three inch exhaust is going to be based on, you know, what the customer wants, but then at the same time, you know, what delivers the power, what's, you know, usable, what's, what's efficient, stuff like that. So having that little bit of motorcycle sport background or you know just knowledge in that sense it helps to aim more accurately dalen you might be able to speak to this too if he's still frozen i thought it was my internet that was freaking out for a second there you also have a pretty extensive background in this sort of thing in yeah this is definitely what i've done for work for many 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 moons it's a it's a delicate balance it's sometimes hard because like what I would want to do and like what the customers would be willing to pay for versus what even sometimes what we have the capabilities to make is it's a, it's a pretty delicate balance. So yeah, I mean, me and multiple other people kind of in this department have a, a pretty heavy background on the race car side of stuff, but we have to kind of tone that down in the sense that sometimes that's not going to be the priority. The priority is going to be um, is this easy to install? Like, can they afford this? Is this going to provide the sound that they want? It's not even like a multi-edge sword. It's like a sword that's got like 14 different edges that you kind of have to like... Ball. Yeah, you have to like kind of jump one to the next because, you know, every time you change one little part of it, you might have impacted something else. So we might say, we wanted to do this specific thing. And then we give it to the CNC team and they make it. And they're like, all right, got it done. Only machine time of 14 hours. And we're like, right. 
Like what? Okay, all right, can't charge for that. How yeah. do we, you know, we went through the the WRX header that was just released. We, yeah. when we decided we wanted to do a billet collector for that. There was a lot of seat time into that and just like learning how to cut it even, um, right. and how to cut it with the finish that we want. Like we bought specific tools. I mean, there is a box of uh, mild and stainless ones that we just messed up because we were trying different techniques on how to make it the most effective way to get the performance we wanted while also getting the right price point for the customer. So there's conscious decisions made in either direction to fit what is going to fit the customer's need. Yeah. Max is kind of spot on with that is it's just, you take what we want to do and you mix that with what the you know market wants or can kind of take and you make the best product you can from it. Yeah, well, and I think again, it makes for a lot of I think that this question ultimately ties back to some of the stuff we were talking about earlier, where it lends to a lot of situational awareness, where you can put yourself in the spot of trying to install this, fix this bracket at, at the track or something like that, or try to remount a hanger or something like that. Yeah. And it just doesn't that well. I'm referring to this catback exhaust because it was a recent project that we did, but I think yeah. it's a perfect example. Oh yeah, and it's and I mean it's it's funny that we caught that because like it was such a natural moment of just uh, it's checks and balances all day every day get to work on a lift and that's all like, when you work on your personal cars you bring them to the shop and you work on your lift yep. you never really have to think about how somebody else is going to deal with it so like that's that's why we have multiple people in this department is we all keep each other in check and we kind of say like oh hey did you try this yeah did you try this, did you try this? like. You know, we might not put it on jack stands. We might lower it down to the height of jack stands and roll around the ground and work on it. But it's such a multifaceted thing. Like, is it is it normal tools? Like, is can you do this with like your normal Craftsman wrench set that you have, or like do you need the sixty five thousand dollars worth of snap on tools to install this part? Like, right? If you can't fit a normal wrench in an area to tighten something, customers are probably not going to be pumped on that. So it's you know, we recently had to make a product where something was so tight that you couldn't fit a normal socket inside. So we had to make it so that you could put the socket in from the side and put an extension in below it. And mm -hmm. like, it's just something that until you go through that whole process, you won't even think about because right. I'm just going to install it no matter what. Well, right. If you have the tools, like a lot of people who have, again, people who are into motorsports, like they have the $65,000 tool set, right? They're paying that snap on bill. And in reality, the general consumer who wants to put a, again, to use the same example, a catback exhaust on their Civic Sport hatch, they probably don't have 65 grand in tools to put a catback exhaust on. So if for some reason you can't, like you said, fit a regular sized socket or wrench up in there, odds are that's gonna cause a pain point for the customer, whereas you might just go grab the right tool to get the job done. They don't have that luxury. Oh yeah, and like I'm even spoiled at home, like, you know, like I said, do this a long time. I just kind of like, if I need a tool, I buy it. I need a tool, I buy it. And like, it's, I'm definitely well beyond like the hobbyist level of like what you have. So I can even spoil myself and kind of say like, oh, well, if they have this thing, well, no, they're not going to. Like the chances are so slim that the average installer is going to have this that, or if it only works with the, you know, specific snap-on mid-size socket and nothing else, like that's just not fair. I mean, you've heard me talk about it all the time. Like, Easy install is literally like one of the main things we focus on because, you know, we, we know the customers we're working with, we know what's going to fit their needs best. 
right. and that's an easier install. You know, if it shows up and you can have it installed in the day that you got it or the night that you got it, you're gonna be way more excited than if you got to take it to a shop, yeah. wait, install, pay the money, and then get your car back. Like it's just a, it's targeting a specific customer base for the most part. So would you say? I guess would you say in R and D overall? Um, I think that this is kind of like a good. Uh, like umbrella, would you say that the goal for R and D overall? It looks like we got Max back on here too, uh, just to end things out with us here. So I was going to say the overarching theme here would be the goal would be to produce products that a can produce the best you know performance results possible while making it easy to install um, and obviously for some parts sounding good at the same time. Yeah, I mean, like we have a we have a whole basically like flow chart of design of like how we walk through it. But yeah, it's a, we want to make the best product available. We want to make it as easy to install as we possibly can, and, and we want to make it fit the budget that the customers are looking for. You know, I'll turn my yeah. hands. If I do this, you can't see the numbers. There we go. Yeah, right. I'm Spider Man. Yeah, and like it's are we going to sacrifice maybe a little bit of performance to make it an installer and make it easier to install? Like. Right. Those decisions have to be made, and we have to kind of know the circles that we're walking around. I'm back, yeah. <laughs> You're going to have to be careful getting into sim racing. You're going to be, like, halfway around the track, and it's just going to freeze. It's okay, mine's just as bad. But, yeah, it, it's kind of just making that decision of, like, kind of having the guiding principles of what we want at the end of the day. Right. Well, and, again, that's where I think, it, again, trying to accomplish those things and knowing all the different options and you knowing the far end of the spectrum where it's, as it's the most expensive and the most complex. Oh yeah, we're making our own bolts for a product. Like right, like you know that information on the far end of the spectrum that helps you be able to make something that's on this end of the difficulty spectrum much easier to perform um, and much easier to install. And you've able been able to think through those situational things because again, you've experienced that extreme side. Yeah, and it's cool to like implement little things because like yeah, you can implement little like kind of little like spices of it. Like you can know that if we do this, it's not going to change the cost much. Corn is going to change. If we use this bolt, it's not going to change the cost much, but man, is it going to look a lot better. Right. Accessibility to bolts, things like that. Yeah. Um, we do have a, we have a, we have a question here from the audience. Uh, it's a, it's a James Sirkel, I think is how it's pronounced. Sirkel, he says, ask Max if the truck is done yet. I think that's a common theme. I think Max is frozen again because he looks like a ghost. His <laughs> eyes aren't moving. I'm terrified right now. Oh, no, he's gone. RIP. Max, we lost you. I tried to ask the question. He just hung up as soon as I answered. I'm sorry. He's really avoiding that question. Yeah, he's just avoiding my question. That's what he's doing. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to answer if you're not here. Right? No, yeah, I mean, it's like I said, it's it's just a, nobody wants to listen to me talk for an hour about the same thing. But yeah, it, it's just finding the, the points that the customers want and that fits everything that we're looking for and everything the customers are looking for and kind of melding that together. Um, obviously you work much closer with, you know, like Max and Tiny than I do, at least six feet apart and closer. I mean, you see them about the same amount I see them right now. No, so it's just, again, it's cool for me to see why some of these people are in the roles that they're in. And yeah. again, when you work somewhere, you give credit to where they're at and you don't necessarily get some of that insight to why people made the decision to go with that individual after until today i didn't know about you know max's motorsport you know education max worked as one of our like line fabricators for many years like that's how he started is just our normal production fabrication side of stuff i would say most of the people here in higher roles are like in 
different roles have been here for a long time. And like they've, they've kind of moved their way through the company and they understand what we want and how we want it. Yeah, well, suppose that's probably going to wrap it up for today, huh? We're hitting about that time. Uh, if you missed the beginning or want to rewatch a section of this, we do pro, uh, post these on our YouTube channel. Um, they are, I believe, also still available after the live on Facebook as well. So feel free to go back on after it gets published. Uh, also, our uh, podcast is now finally available on every platform where you can get your podcast. If you go on and look up Behind the Boost on Apple or Spotify, SoundCloud, you name it, it's on there. Um, Behind the Boost. Apparently, it posts it for us everywhere. Anywhere you can possibly listen to your podcast, we're there. Uh, we're even in a thing called Pocket Cast. Uh, we're really moving things into the 21st century here. We do live streams and podcasts now. So anyways, my point was, if you want to listen to this as opposed to watch it, feel free to check us out wherever you listen to your podcast. It's behind the boost. But anyways, guys, thanks again for tuning in. Charlie and Dalen, we're the last two here, so we're going to end it. And we'll see you guys next time. And there you have it, guys. Hopefully you learned something that you can either take with you into the garage or bring with you to the track. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then. Is that good enough? Yeah. Okay. Yeah.